The views expressed in this podcast are meant for entertainment and educational purposes only. We do not know what facts are true, do not claim to know the facts, and have not performed our own investigation. Allegations are just that, allegations. We're using the information we find in news articles and other secondhand reporting of these allegations to entertain and hopefully spark discussion. Noah and Bill's opinions of and commentary on these cases are based upon hypotheticals using their extensive knowledge of the law and personal experience in the courtroom. Please rise. Court is now in session. I strenuously object. A legal podcast brought to you by the Pittsburgh Law Firm of Flaherty Fardo is now in session. All those seeking information about the law and legal matters affecting the people of Pittsburgh and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, half-baked opinions, and a dose of self-indulgence are invited to attend and participate. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The defense strenuously objects. You would! Call the first witness. All right, everyone, thanks for being with us here today. Noah, thanks for being here today. It's another day in uh, in podcasting paradise, and it's the return of one of our most popular features here on the podcast, that is case or no case. Uh, Noah, you excited? You ready to roll with this? Did, did you just say one of our most popular? I mean, have you looked at any analytics? <laughs> I can tell you this. The verbal feedback I've received from the handful of listeners that I've actually talked to, which, you know, may or may not be friends and family, unimportant right now, definitely said, hey, you guys need to bring case or no case back. So Mike, the podcast producer here, friends and family uh, saying your podcast is good as like your mother saying you're a handsome boy. <laughs> you're a nice boy. <laughs> nice but on boy. the other hand, our Instagram uh, does seem to be taking off. One of our uh, posts there, one of our reels has over 13,000 views and counting. Wow. So wow. Hi I highly uh, recommend people check out the, the Instagram, I Strenuously Object podcast. Great plug, Mike. Great work. What I'd like to do is move through a couple different cases that have made news recently. For those who haven't listened to our first case or no case episode, it is basically exactly what it sounds like. We're going to first discuss the, the facts, the information, the, the fact patterns and situations that we're seeing. And then at the end of the day, uh, you know, as, as two attorneys, um, we are going to render our opinions as to whether the facts we're discussing here give rise to a, a viable legal case or not. On the agenda today, just to kind of kind of tease what's coming a little bit, we got a, we got a couple big verdicts that we're going to get around to discussing at the end. Spoiler alert, those are cases. But before that, we're going to deal with, you know, a little a little intrigue in the uh, in the food service industry. But first, what I'd like to do is discuss a, a case where we have a, a man in Florida who was incorrectly declared dead by paramedics. Bring out your dead one. No, I'm I'm not dead. 20 minutes later, was found by a sheriff's deputy to still be breathing. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. To assess this case, what we're going to do is kind of call from a couple different articles uh, uh, a set of facts that we can consider. And look, these are in articles, they're allegations. We don't necessarily literally know the truth of this. But for the purposes of this exercise, let's just assume the things that, that the articles have told me and that I'm now telling you are true, okay? All right. Yeah. Uh, these are allegations, right? No defamation suits here. We don't know what's true or false. What we do know is the the story that we're hearing and the allegations that we have is you have a 65-year-old gentleman in Florida who goes into some measure of cardiac arrest. His daughter's there. His daughter starts administering CPR. That goes on for a while. It 
it's kind of a scary scene, right? He's cold to the touch. His lips are turning blue. They obviously call 911 and the paramedics arrive. When the paramedics arrive, they kind of take over the proceedings, or, or one would think they, they should take over the proceedings. They come in and immediately tell the daughter, I'm sorry, he's gone. I think, I think uh, one of the things I read said they did spend 10 seconds kind of feeling for a pulse. The daughter tells them he was breathing. And their response is, no, ma'am, I'm sorry. That was just gases leaving his body. So the, the professionals come in and declare this guy dead. They leave, right? They're not administering life-saving care because as far as they're concerned, you know, it's too late for that. The medical examiners show up. There's a sheriff or a sheriff's deputy in place to investigate what happened here. You know, kind of whatever the local procedures in Florida are after someone passes away. And a sheriff's dep- deputy notices that this gentleman, who's now under a like a sheet because he, they, you know, he's been declared dead. They, they catch him breathing. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. 20 minutes pass between the time he's declared dead by the paramedics and the time that this sheriff's deputy sees him breathing. Now they call a new ambulance. They bring someone, you know, a new set of paramedics in. They start administering care. They take him off to the hospital. He survives. I think I'll go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. So you've got the daughter who's been told that her father's dead. She's literally starting to make calls to the rest of her family, telling, telling them, you know, that her dad passed. Turns out not to be true. He's in the hospital for weeks, but he does recover. Now, I'll, I'll circle back a little bit to... You know, there are some allegations that there are some lasting, you know, deficits and and physical injuries as a result of what he went through here. But I mean, he walked out of the hospital. Amazingly, they went from making phone calls to say dad's dead to, you know, having family dinner with him. So, Noah, I put it to you. Case or no case? I put it to you, Greg. Isn't this an indictment? Of our entire American society? A couple things first. I mean, who are you asking whether there's a case for? The individual who was declared dead or the daughter? I'm willing to consider both. I mean, you know, I'm not sure either have a case under the EMS immunity laws. I mean, I always worked under the assumption, at least in Pennsylvania, and I think the jurisdictions jurisdictions differ. But if they're acting in their professional capabilities as an EMS, I think they're immune in Pennsylvania from liability. I mean, if it's something grossly negligent, the courts may allow it. But what's your thoughts on that? This is not a, uh, this is not a particular immunity or feature that I've, uh, that I've dealt with. I'm not aware of it. Can you tell me more? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I just remember years ago having a case where they were transporting someone out of a house and they dropped her and she broke her arm and they were immune from liability because they were acting, they were trying to help her. So I'm not convinced that you can sue EMS, but I'm looking online as we're talking because I was curious, and it looks like some jurisdictions allow it and some don't. But assuming for this case or no case that we can get past, you're allowed to sue EMS. They're not immune. Um, I think the dad does not have a case. I think the daughter has a good case. Well, a couple things here. I am not ready to pass a full professional opinion on the question of what the exceptions to whatever immunity there is. And there is some measure of immunity from what I can see in some circumstances for EMS providers, but whether or not that immunity is going to extend to uh, a certain level of medical negligence is an open question. If this case walks in the door here in Pennsylvania, we'd have to do the research to figure out, okay, what are the contours of the, the obligations here? 
and where is it that we can find, if any, relief from this kind of immunity? Assuming that you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have that immunity, or at least that you're, or that you're in a jurisdiction where you, there are exceptions to that sort of immunity that you can fall under, it's interesting for you to take the position that you think the daughter has a case and the father doesn't. And some of that, I think, is going to really rest on the extent to which the father suffers actual physical injuries and consequences. So there are two different kind of types of cases that one can talk about bringing here, one of which is a case for the negligent infliction of emotional distress, right? Um, as opposed to looking at the, the EMS providers in terms of the physical injuries that they cause to someone. Anybody who is in a p- situation where where they're told, their father or their spouse or their their loved one or their child is dead and that turns out to be false they have had to undergo you know this immediate shocking emotional trauma start already onto the earliest stages of a grieving process unnecessarily that is compensable harm at least within certain confines right uh, if there is a duty of care that extends to to such a person and if it's foreseeable there are there are cases in in the past where they talk about other medical providers and the duty that you would owe to family members not to convey false information about someone being deceased how is he doctor it uh, looks like he's dead oh my god uh just to be clear it, it looks like he's dead or he is dead it just looks like he's dead He's got like blue paint on him or something, but he's going to be fine. What is wrong with you? Precisely because your standard here ends up being, is this foreseeably the kind of emotional harm that, that no one should be forced to bear or should be expected to bear? To me, this, this lands on that. But finding places to establish duty, to say that the EMS owed a duty not just to the, the ostensible patient in the room, but to his daughter, is an interesting uh, an open question. So on that case, on that point, I'm leaning case, but I don't think it's open and shut. So title 35, section 8151, simple negligence is immune. So in order, in every case, right, there's liability and damages. The liability, they would have to prove that the EMS was grossly negligent or acted willfully to cause this harm. And I guess the question would be whether or not experts say uh, not recognizing a pulse or breath was so grossly negligent. So, you know, I think you could get the liability. But shouldn't she be happy, Bill? I mean, the guy's alive. I'm, look, I'm sure it's a mixed bag of emotions, right? Um, I'm reminded of the, the scene in Fight Club where, he, uh, where they take the uh, – spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Fight Club um, – where they, they take the, the clerk at the convenience store out back and, and threaten his life and find out that he wants to be a, a veterinarian, that that's his dream, not working as a clerk in a convenience store. And then he pulls the gun away and says, okay, I'm going to be back in a year. If you're not on your way to being a veterinarian by then, I will kill you. Imagine how he feels. Come on, this isn't funny. That wasn't funny. What the fuck was the point of that? Tomorrow will be the most beautiful day of Raymond Castle's life. His breakfast will taste better than any meal you and I have ever tasted. Look, I don't think you get to claim the credit for taking the emotional trauma away once you've given the emotional trauma in the first place. Yeah, I give her a million dollars. The daughter's Maxwell. I give her a million. See what Mike says. I do have a question uh, that may decide whether or not this is a case. Like, how often does something like this happen? I mean, I don't know if it's truth or urban legends, but 
they say that in times past, this sort of thing where people were thought to be dead and were not happened so often that there was a, a little bell uh, above the grave with a string going down to the casket just in case they woke up and found themselves buried alive, they could pull on the string and the bell would ring and we would exhume them. If something happened that often where you needed a little bell to to alert everyone, this might be somewhat of a common occurrence. And could they be held liable for something that happens actually fairly often? I think you've seized on an important issue. Uh, you, you can't just judge these things by the result. Um, if they acted properly and simply missed the signs that this person was still alive, that's not negligence. And in medical malpractice cases or, or any professional negligence environment, ultimately the case has to be subjected to the review of other medical professionals who can come in and talk about what the medical standard of care is. It's not as simple as you made a misdiagnosis, in this case, a diagnosis of death. You made a misdiagnosis, therefore you're responsible for it. Well, no. How do you know? How do you know there was a misdiagnosis? How do you know the gentleman didn't die and a few minutes later came back to life? I mean, it could, I suppose, be a Lazarus situation. I do note that the fact that the daughter said, no, no, he's breathing and was shunted aside gives some indication that this isn't a situation where there was no evidence confronting either a hypothetical court or the EMS in the moment um, that this gentleman had passed. But but I also want to add, uh, I, I found a quote in, in one of the newspaper articles attributed to the, the chief of the Clearwater Fire and Rescue Department for whom the, 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 the medics in question worked. And as someone who's, you know, worked in a medical malpractice field for so long, I found this just the most amazing apology, public apology, no less, in the press that I've ever seen on this sort of thing. And uh, this chief, apparently a, a Scott Ellers, per the per the article in question, states, I apologize for the actions and inactions of our crew during this incident. We have strict policies and procedures in place that were not followed, according to our preliminary review. These two did not perform to the standard of care that our citizens expect and deserve. He's like literally admitting the elements of medical negligence. Now, maybe they're free to do that because there's immunity in, in, in Florida that they think mere negligence isn't something they're going to be on the hook for anyway. Maybe that's why you've got what to, in, in, in our practice would be an unprecedented level of acceptance of responsibility by someone. Yeah. You know, I think the case is, has value. I, I would pass. I don't want it. As a lawyer, you know what? It's probably a case. Let somebody else take uh, it. See, no, I, I strenuously object. I want this case. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think this is a situation where if the facts are as bad as that apology and the surrounding circumstances would lead one to believe, if he was so alive that a, you know, sheriff's deputy is able to see that he's breathing, but you're trained, you know, first responders are, you know, are just describing it as gas leaving the body. Um, you know, to me, that's a case. And, and the only thing I'll add is we separated at the beginning of this, the idea of the daughter's case where the duty's a little bit less clear, but the damages are more obvious from the father's case, the actual patient's case, where the, the duty that's owed when you're providing treatment and care to someone, um, you know, that duty is more obvious. But then the question becomes comparing the delay in treatment, how much worse is he because of the 20 minute delay 
versus whatever medical problem he was already having anyway. If they take him immediately to the hospital and immediately provide medical care, he may still be in the same place he is now. I mean, you know, the fact that he walked out of there seems like a, you know, something of a miracle. And, you know, it, it's hard to run out the hypotheticals of, hey, if they if they treated him more promptly, could he have reasonably expected a better result? Nah, it's, I don't like it. Go ahead. All right, let's move on to uh, to case number two here. Every year I like to go to uh, to Buffalo Wild Wings. Buffalo Wild Wings, you have to be here. Watch some NCAA tournament games, order a run of wings as they kind of slowly trickle across my uh, my table and, you know, watch four games at once on multiple TVs and, and that sort of thing. So it was an especially appropriate time of year for, for me to encounter this article talking about a class action lawsuit that's been filed in Illinois against Buffalo Wild Wings. Noah, have you heard this case? Yeah, I've read a little bit about it. Uh, a gentleman who apparently has something of a history of being a named plaintiff in various consumer-style class action lawsuits uh, has, in this case, taken it upon himself and, and, and found a local attorney to represent him in filing this complaint to sue Buffalo Wild Wings because their boneless wings are not made from wing meat but rather their white meat, chicken breast meat uh, that, that's breaded and thus more akin to a chicken nugget or that sort of thing than what you would call a quote-unquote wing. And, and I mean, it is certainly true that Buffalo Wild Wings calls their boneless wings exactly that, boneless wings. Um, they do also, in, in other places, describe them as being made from all-white meat chicken. Um, and I note, in part because I think it's a, a, a delightful response, that Buffalo Wild Wings made a public tweet in response to this lawsuit. Uh, and the, well, the news of the lawsuit, I suppose, uh, which says it's true. Our boneless wings are all white meat chicken. Our hamburgers contain no ham and our Buffalo wings are 0% Buffalo. <laughs> so no, a case or no case. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the definition of boneless wings on Wikipedia, and apparently in the industry, boneless chicken wings are not actually wings, but rather are typically formed from breast meat. So apparently the standard industry is to call boneless wings, but use chicken breast meat. Um, it's a dumb case. <laughs> I guess if you first hear about it and it's a wing and it's not a wing, it's a breast, okay, they're not being factually accurate. That might get you to liability. I don't think so. My thought is, how is it even detectable to the consumer? Is there a difference in taste? Is there a difference in quality? Is there a difference in nutrition? And if there is a difference in nutrition, I doubt someone sitting at Buffalo Wild Wings really cares that much about that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 am, I am certainly no, no nutrition expert. Uh, a few things, kind of broad strokes here. For, for, for those with less of a wing eating habit than have I, um, among the differences between the boneless wings and, you know, traditional actual made from chicken wing wings, right? The meat's different. You're talking about dark meat in the case of a wing versus chicken breast meat, white meat, um, in the case of these boneless wings, the breading is different or all breading in and of itself is different, right? A traditional Buffalo wing, you're, you're using the skin and you're kind of cooking it on that. You're not breading around it. But this 
processed chicken breast meat, it doesn't have skin. It's, it's a chunk of muscle as opposed to a distinct chicken part. And so you have to bread it to create the outside that you can then toss in the wing sauce and so on. So, you know, it's breaded. I'm assuming that means higher carbs, but, you know, the white meat is generally healthier than dark meat from like a caloric perspective. The cost is interesting too. For most of my life, chicken breast meat would have been more expensive than wings. Now that has changed around, right? Nowadays, based on, among other things, the way in which they kind of genetically treat these chickens, you got, <laughs> forget where I saw it, I think it was in one of the articles about this case, uh, where, you know, they can they can pump up the breast muscles of these chickens as much as they want and create these gargantuan chicken breasts. But in the end, the chickens still just have the two wings. Um, and so like per chicken, your ability to generate these quantities of meats have changed. Other things in the industry have changed. So some of the allegation here could be that, that Buffalo Wild Wings is pulling a, a bait and switch that benefits them economically now in a way that it didn't before because they're providing you with what is cheaper meat. I can't wait till they genetically modify a chicken to have eight wings. That's going to look amazing. <laughs> it reminds me of the, uh, you know, John Madden's six or eight or whatever it is, legged turkey from the Thanksgiving games for all those years. Yeah. Noah, you asked earlier what the damages are. This is, of course, a, a, a totally fair and appropriate question, taking one specific case in isolation, right? You, you ate a piece of chicken. Um, you know, you weren't poisoned by the chicken. You weren't allergic to something in, in the, in the chicken that you got. Um, this is why, of course, he brought it as a class action. The whole idea or one of the main ideas of a class action suit is to create a civil remedy and relief for situations where the individual harm that each member of the class suffers is so small that the economic incentive to pursue the litigation doesn't exist. And so you, you take everyone's claims together. Maybe I only got bait and switched out of $7 a chicken. But if that's happened to a million people or 10 million people or 30 million people, now my case theoretically gets larger. Yeah, I mean, this is a simple money grab by the lawyers who file it as a class action lawsuit because, you know, these cases against the food and beverage companies, class action specifically, went from 18 in 2008 to 300 last year. So the lawyers figured out it doesn't matter if it's a good case or not. Is it a case or no case? Legally, I guess lawyers will make money, but it's a no case to me because the only reason we're talking about it is because it's theater of the absurd. It's so unique and dumb that we're people are writing articles and we're talking about it on a podcast. Don't we need to see the menu? Was wings in quotation marks? Was there some kind of a disclaimer, an asterisk, and then down at the bottom, was there something on the menu that let consumers know what they were eating. So I think, I think the, the phrase all white meat chicken does appear, which requires now the consumer to know the difference between white meat and dark meat to be able to figure out. But that to me, that's, that's where this case really falls apart and why I think it's no case. I think the average consumer knows that boneless chicken wings are made from breast meat. When they hear the phrase boneless chicken wings, they don't think there's someone in the back pulling the bones out from the various parts of a chicken wing like that. That does not make sense. Ladies and gentlemen, it has nothing to do with this case. It does not make sense. Even if you're not measuring this thing by the industry standard definition of the term, look all the time in kind of the food industry or whatever, we have phrases or turns of phrase, right? That's why Buffalo Wild Wings sends their tweet. I, I don't need to know that there's not dog meat in a hot dog. There is an ex expectation that as a human being walking through and living in society that I know these things well enough 
that I'm not being deceived by relatively standard phrasing on a menu. And similarly, how many times have any of us been at a, at a restaurant where we're not really sure what some of the words in a particular menu item or dish are? Like you're kind of rolling the dice on that if you're not sure. You know, I, I don't think that they're they're deceiving me. So, I mean, you could argue from a contract perspective, we had an agreement. This is what you offered me. This is the everyday meaning of this word, and you didn't give it to me. But but the but the everyday it, meaning you know, of wings to people is more about the presentation. In other words, the sauce that's on it, the things you dip it into, the yeah. celery. You get a plate of pieces of meat prepared in this way. It's wing style. I think that's fair. That makes sense. Moving on to, and I, and I think we can kind of couple up a little bit these third and fourth cases, at least as far as our analysis. Uh, these are both cases because they've come to verdict. We, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight now. So just recently, there have been a couple different verdicts that I want to talk about. First of all, um, there was a hazing case, sad case, you know, freshman in college who passed away. He was pledging a fraternity. Uh, they apparently had, I forget what they call the particular this particular trial as part of their pledge process, but they basically quiz you question and answer about, you know, like the fraternity's history. And if you get questions wrong, you're made to drink. You know, it's not the sort of thing that is that is unheard of among, uh, around the world of, of hazing and fraternity hazing and so on. In this case, the, the, the poor student in question, his blood alcohol content was like 0.495. Um, he he had, was an outrageously high BAC. Um, there's an astounding quantity of alcohol to get him there. Um, and you have, I mean, a suit was filed against LSU where he went to school, the fraternity in question, I'm assuming both local chapter and the, like the national, as well as several of the students, the upperclassmen who were involved in the hazing. Anyway, this went to trial and a jury in Louisiana awarded $6.1 million, um, to the parents covering both a survival and a wrongful death action, um, arising from this case. Um, I note that apparently by the time it got to trial, there had been settlements with with all the other defendants, except for, I think, you know, one of the students, uh, one of the other fraternity members who was being sued, right? The school had already settled out. The fraternity itself had already settled out uh, for various sums. So I don't know what this $6.1 million verdict actually means as far as how they divvy that up. Um, you know, the articles tell me that the family asked for $25 million, got $6.1 million. Uh, that when, when LSU settled, because it's a, a public school and these things end up being more public in those regards, their portion of the settlement was just $875,000. So, Noah, it's a case. Uh, the question here is, you know, what are your thoughts about that verdict, the kind of, the, the kind of settlement you're seeing there? Um, and just a quick take, because I want to compare it to another case. It's definitely a case, and, and the hazing cases over the last five, seven, even ten years have gotten a lot of traction, and the numbers have been really big. There was a big case against Penn State. It, it, there's an unknown here where the verdict was for $6.1 but we don't know what the total recovery by the family was. When I first read that, 6.1 was really low for a good college kid with his entire life ahead of him. Uh, the lost earning capacity alone could have been $10 million. Yeah. So, you know, I viewed that probably as a $20 million case, $25 million case, you know, and it's hard to put any number on a life. You know, we'll get into it more with the next case you're going to talk about. You just never know what these juries are going to do. And no matter how many cases you have, how many cases you settle, how many cases you try, juries are a constant unknown, 
at least our entire careers, don't you think? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there is always a wild card factor when it comes along around to actually getting to and in front of a jury, right? If, if the lawyers for the plaintiffs here knew what the verdict at an eventual trial would be, they obviously wouldn't have settled for $875,000, you know, against the university, which is presumably that, or, or the national fraternity or your two deepest pocketed defendants here. Um, you know, you're not going to get that much money out of, you know, a college student or the family of a college student who, who ends up being liable, liable on these things as well. It seemed low to me. My initial impression, 6.1 million uh, on this type of case seemed low to me. It is an unsurprising, I think it's an objectively low number. It's, it's a lower number than I would give if I were a juror. It's a lower number than I think is fair when you're talking about actually extinguishing the life of, you know, of a 19-year-old young man with his whole future in front of him. But, and, and Noah, I'm going to point out, you are completely prohibited. You've used your allotted share of the, the opening lines from a civil action. Uh, which which we've played at least twice, if not three times in the past year on this podcast, where, where John Travolta's character assesses what the perfect plaintiff is and men better than women and, uh, you know, dead plaintiffs versus alive plaintiffs and so on. Rich versus yeah. poor. And, yeah. um, you know, even better than the civil action Travolta opening was a Michael Keaton uh, movie called Worth. I have um, neither, neither seen nor heard of this movie. That really is teaching a law school class. How do you value the loss of life? Um, and I think he was the, it's a true story. He was the gentleman who was brought in after 9-11, if I'm correct, to value the, the loss of the people that were killed. And you had to go and value thousands of lives and put different numbers on them. The victims and their families will be compensated based on economic value loss. That's where the formula comes in. 80%. Any fewer come aboard, the lawsuits that result could crater the economy. Why is it an equal payment for everybody? My daughters were just as much as anybody in a corner office. But I wanted to compare, you know, back in February, verdict out of Philadelphia where a, uh, a former Philadelphia Eagle, Chris Maragos, and I may be butchering his name as far as pronunciation, which is, which is an interesting part of this I'll get back to. But he won a, an award in a medical malpractice case alleging a failure to diagnose and treat a torn meniscus in his knee uh, that he alleges ended his football playing career. And he was awarded $43.5 million. Now, a few things to note here. As I noted, I'm not exactly sure I pronounced his last name correctly. I am a not insubstantial football fan. But, you know, he was a, you know, a safety and a special teams captain, a special teamer. So... Uh, I, I will hopefully be forgiven if my, my knowledge of the Eagles' uh, prior depth chart doesn't go to the point that he was a household name for me. He was already 31 years old. He tore his PCL and underwent surgery on the PCL to repair it. He alleges that at the time of that surgery, they should have also repaired a torn meniscus that they failed to discover at that time. That subsequent MRIs showed this torn meniscus, but that they put him on an aggressive rehabilitation program that had him running and basically made that tear worse. His knee never healed sufficiently. He got released by the Eagles after the end of that season and has never been able to play football again. You know, complaints he's, he's the only dad among his friend group, can't go out and play flag football with his kids kind of thing because his knee's shot. Let's grant for the moment. The, there were defenses here. The doctors, the doctor who did this 
made the defense that at the time I did the procedure, I didn't see any issue with the meniscus. They even suggested that he may have injured the meniscus subsequent to the procedure, right? That he was just, that he was not disclosing a subsequent injury that he suffered and claiming they were responsible. The jury didn't find that credible, apparently, um, because they found them negligent. But where I want to focus here is on that that kind of eye-popping $43.5 million figure. This isn't a, a quarterback or someone who was signing like the top-end contracts in the NFL. He had a claim for lost wages. That claim for lost wages was $8.7 million. Still a big chunk. Still a chunk that the, the defendants here were poking at like, look, you're already 31 years old. You've only made $10 million in your career to date. Is it really reasonable to think that your career was going to last that much longer coming off this PCL injury that, that wasn't our fault anyway? Coming off a lifetime of playing football in the NFL and playing football your entire life yeah. and your knees are bad. This was a shock. This was a shocking verdict. And the question is, why was this such a big verdict? Noah, you know this answer. Well, I mean, well, a couple things. Dr. James Bradley, this Pittsburgh Steeler doctor who is globally recognized as one of the leading orthopedic surgeons in the world. That's who the defendant was. And highly respected, likable guy, comes across very well went on the stand and actually said, if I knew everything I knew now, I still would not have done anything different. I mean, you know, that's a pretty defendable case right there when you get a really likable, high-powered, knowledgeable doctor saying that. But what the jury did, Bill, and I guess I can only guess, is they said, yeah, he lost at least $8.7 million on his current contract, but what if he played for three or four more years? I mean, the best part about this case to me was that the jury deliberation was the Monday after the Eagles lost the Super Bowl. Ding, 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 ding. That's our answer. What are the chances that, you know, you never know when a trial is going to, how long it's going to take, but this must have started seven or 10 days, two weeks prior to the Super Bowl. And maybe the plaintiff's lawyers were that good that they timed it. But when the jury went to deliberate, it was the Monday morning after the Super Bowl loss. And I think he was loved in the city of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, for whatever reason, is known as one of the more generous cities in America for giving jury verdicts. It's one of the best places you can ever bring a medical malpractice. So I think it stars aligned, um, and they awarded seven times for a, for a missed meniscus what the LSU student family received for the hazing. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, a few things to circle around with and, and maybe kind of clean up. My understanding is he was not on a then-existing $8.7 million contract. And in any case, it's the NFL. His contracts weren't guaranteed. You know, he was already released by the team uh, and wasn't going to receive that money uh, by the time that the, uh, you know, the injury got worse and he was rehabbing, as I understand it. They had an expert, an economic expert, come in and project what his expected future earnings were total, cumulatively, and that's the $8.7 million figure. So he was not expected to make that much per year or per contract. That's how much their experts were projecting he was going to make over the remainder of his career as an already 31-year-old football player. But to me, everything here is like the crazy circumstance that this case went to trial like right before and during the, you know, the week before and then to verdict right after the Super Bowl. And then the Eagles happened to make the Super Bowl. And so... You've got, you know, jurors in Philadelphia who, you know, are subjected to Super Bowl hype or excited for the Super Bowl. Their team's in the Super Bowl. You know, they love their team. You know, their team is successful. So they're, you know, they're 
there's all these factors going in that make him more likable because the Eagles are more likable, more successful because the Eagles are more successful. Jurors thinking this guy maybe could have been in the Super Bowl this weekend. And instead he's here at this trial, you know, because his career is over and we think it's these doctors fault. And that's just, that is a wild, wild card. Um, as far as, as far as how that goes. Yeah. When you think about high verdicts, a lot of things have to ha- have to happen. You really have they the jury really have to like the plaintiff. It's quite possible that they did not like the defendants or their lawyers or they or they angered them somehow. But I also think whenever you get that number, it usually means that a couple of the jurors were even higher. You know, it's it's usually a compromise in a jury room that somebody was at a hundred million or seventy-five million and they came down to forty-three million, and others were at ten and then maybe they met in the middle. They may have all just started at 40 million. That's possible too. But I feel like, you know, for for you to get 12 unanimous or at least 10 out of 12 um that high, wow. It was a shocking shocking verdict. Yeah, and look, you know, God, God bless everyone involved. I'm, you know, I'm not begrudging the jury or their job there. I think it's interesting, you know, when you compare that award to what a, a Louisiana jury gave to a, to a person who was killed, uh it points out just the high degree of variance that's present in the system. Uh, the only other thing that may or may not have come to play, certainly after the verdict came out, you know, the pl- plaintiff's attorney kind of cast it as far as these doctors who work for the teams, they should really be putting the patient's interest first and you should be doing the medical care that's necessary to heal the patient's body and not get the patient back to football as soon as possible. And there's kind of an inherent conflict in team provided doctors and medical care and facilities because the interest of the team and getting someone back on the field can be rather different than the, you know, the interest of the player or his health. Although I note not always, right? Uh, Sometimes the player just wants to get back on the field uh, as well and worry about the long lasting consequences anyway. Didn't you feel that this case was good for our medical malpractice clients in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this is the, the, the kind of verdict in, in almost every case. And, and the majority of cases, uh, the majority of cases settle. They don't go to verdict. But what the defendants and the defendants insurance companies are always calculating when they're trying to figure out what a, what a reasonable settlement is, is kind of what the exposure, and in particular, like the the likely and then the maximum possible exposure that their clients face is. So it's the risk of a, a verdict this size that makes all the cases that settle for much less than $43 million settle because somewhere in the back of their mind, the insurance company, the defendant, what they don't want is, you know, $40 million verdict is placed against me and the insurance company has to pay all that out because they didn't settle it for, you know, a couple million earlier in the process. Now, now here's the other side of the coin. It makes us settling a wrongful death case against a hospital. You know, when I hear $43 million for a bad knee, how do you settle a wrongful death, the loss of a, a life for $10 million? You know, to me, it, it, it's going to make me reevaluate a lot of what I'm willing to recommend to our clients. Yeah, I mean, look, in the end, these things are the client's decision. And we consistently will tell them that as we're handling their cases here. All we can do is put the evidence in front of them. And when we're advising, you know, a plaintiff in a case, whether it's a wrongful death case or any case, but especially a case where someone dies, I want to show them both of these articles, both of these stories. I want them to know both things that Mm -hmm. are in play here, which is, look, sometimes you, you you know, you hit this grand slam and, and you can and you can get 
you know, tens of millions of dollars. And unlike most cases, when you're suing, you know, the hospital and medical practices, th that's money you're actually can, can receive. Now, they'll file appeals and settle for less than dollar for dollar everything that's in there almost certainly. But, you know, it's going to be a big chunk of change. But it's also possible that, you know, you know, what did we see out of this verdict in Louisiana? You got a $6.1 million verdict that I think is just, you know, against an individual who's not going to have the resources to pay that much anyway. So you've got a giant number in the verdict, but nowhere near that much money actually making it into, you know, the hands of the family who lost this child. Well, young adult, but, you know, they, you know, they lost a, you know, a son and a, you know, and a brother and a friend and whatever. And they're, they're seeing nowhere near these same figures. And every plaintiff who's confronted with the decision of, of how and when and at what dollar value to settle, e even a really good, you know, malpractice or personal injury case, you know, they need to decide how much of that risk of wildly different outcomes they're willing to take on. Am I willing to roll the dice to try to get $40 million when there's a chance the jury could come back and say, I like this doctor. I don't think this doctor did anything wrong. Defense verdict. You get nothing. Yeah. Well, and, and to me, it led me to believe, at least in this case, that the defendants weren't even willing to pay the $8 million. I mean, do you think the plaintiff's lawyer would have taken $8 million prior to going to trial? To me, I think it, the offer was less than that. I bet it was a, a couple million and they said, let's just roll the dice. You know, I, I, I would I would think, but I would also be guessing, um, you know, yeah. it, it's kind of hard and dangerous to speculate. These things are supposed to be confidential as far as settlements. It's why the only one we really know out of this LSU case is for the university because it's a public institution. Um, but you don't you don't know and can't really assume whose fault it was or if it was anyone's fault when a case gets to trial instead of settling. Maybe the defendant was offering too little. Maybe the plaintiff was asking too much. Maybe both of them are acting reasonably and just have different risk tolerances. It's tempting to try to reconstruct afterwards who made what decision and, and what was rational based upon the outcomes. But, you know, I, I am not comfortable making anything other than the barest of speculation about about what the, the actual offers and demands were in this case. Fair enough. Well, that will about do it. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, listeners. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this particular version of Case or No Case. Um, and hopefully you learned something or, you know, otherwise enjoyed the time we've spent together. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell total strangers. If you have questions for our mailing it in, in segment or things you'd like us to talk about, feedback for the podcast email us. Uh, that's at iobject at pghfirm.com. Um, you can also see our in Instagram, which uh, which Mike was kind enough to, to drop at the beginning, and I will drop again at the end. That Instagram is I strenuously object podcast. And for more information on any legal matters, uh, any free consultations to determine whether or not you've got a case or no case, uh, visit our website. That's uh, we're Flaherty, Fardo, Rogel, and Amick. And our website is pghfirm.com. Until next time, some parting advice. Jackie, you think we got a case? Your face is my case. Noah, are we adjourned? We are adjourned. <laughs>